It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer. The 2019-2020 Premier League season is underway. We're going to be with you twice a week for all the best reaction and analysis from some of the best football writers in the business. Joining Gregor Robertson and I in the studio today, it is Molly Hudson. Plus, we have Chief Football Correspondent for The Times, Oliver Kay, on the show as well. Later on, we'll take a look at how the Premier League new boys looked as they got their campaigns underway. And of course, VAR was always going to steal the show as it made its domestic debut in the top flight of English football. Liverpool and Manchester City picked up where they left off, but it was Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's Manchester United that put in the performance of the weekend as they swept past Frank Lampard's Chelsea 4-0. So Manchester United recorded their biggest Old Trafford win over Chelsea since 1965 to condemn Lampard to a miserable start as a Premier League manager. The Chelsea boss called it a reality check himself. It, it probably is a wake-up call for Frank Lampard, isn't it, Ollie? I don't know about wake-up call. I mean, it was, um, it was. I don't know, it probably, probably started as if it was going like a dream and then turned into a very strange, bad, surreal dream in that a good performance just... Unraveled dramatically in, in, in the in the sort of um, from 65 minutes onwards, they still were very much in the game at one nil down. I mean, they they didn't deserve to be one nil down when when they went behind. They kept creating chances in the first half. I'd say they were probably playing in just the way he wanted, apart from um, a couple of sort of aberrations from Kurt Zuma. But after they went two nil down, they just collapsed terribly, and, and United with a speed that they have on the, on the counter with, with Rashford and Martial and Pogba once he got a bit between his teeth it just became a completely different game, completely different to everything that happened before so I, I think Lampard probably got it right when he said that there were a lot of things he liked in the performance and four or five things that he really didn't like because it was, um, it, it, was it was a curious performance in many ways Yeah Molly, perhaps 4-0 wasn't a fair scoreline on reflection of what we saw at Old Trafford. Yeah, I think you I think Frank said after the game that it was it was literally four mistakes for each of the goal and what what was so good about United was how clinical they were because they they had those chances and they took them and that sort of it was literally a blink and you'll miss it. They were, you know, it was 1-0, it was a bit nervy and as Ollie said Chelsea were creating some really good chances, probably playing the better football in fact. Um 
And then as quick as that, it was over and the, the scoreline was a bit embarrassing, I guess, for Frank. But it was one of those things where, as we were saying earlier, how how much do you actually take from that, that first game? Because, you know, there's there's a couple of players that was out injured, you know, new signings are settling in. And I think, you know, I guess what will be really interesting is how, how Chelsea react against Liverpool in midweek and how they do do going forward. And whether, I guess, United can be that clinical, because if they can... With the with Harry Maguire as a new signing and Lindelof um, looking like a promising centre back partnership, if they can combine that with being so clinical going forward, I think you know they could surprise a few people. We'll talk more about Manchester United in just a moment, but Gregor, let's get your take on what we saw with Chelsea. Um, obviously, we we spoke in our preview podcast about the transfer embargo that they're under right now, so we always knew it was going to be a, a difficult start to Frank Lampard's campaign. Yeah, I think I think. There's a danger of us reading too much into it. I, I think we all agree it was not quite... It certainly wasn't a, a 4-0 game. Mm. Um, Chelsea could have scored in the first half quite easily, hit the woodwork twice. And Manchester United were, were clinical, uh, as Molly said. So it wasn't a 4-0 game. Um, I think Frank Lampard's hand was forced slightly. Kante, Willian, Rudiger, three experienced players that are likely to return in the coming weeks. Uh, and... It, it's always going to be this way. There's, this is supposed to be a kind of a brave new era for, for Chelsea. It's, I know it's enforced, but um, there are a lot of players out there with very little Premier League experience uh, compared to the, the Chelsea teams we know. And, and uh, it's going to, they're going to have to learn pretty quickly, I think. Well, the Manchester United fans were, as you would expect, very quick to, to get on the back of Frank Lampard with their uh, chanting in the stadium. Um, how patient do you think the Chelsea fans and board can be, Ollie? Uh, the fans will be will be patient, and they'll they will make allowances for Lampard that they didn't really make for for Maurizio Sarri or or certain other managers that they've had over the years. I mean, they were chanting Lampard's name throughout yesterday. I don't think um, Sarri's name was ever chanted at all, apart from in fairly uh, derogatory terms. Um, and look, I mean, as for the board, I mean, who knows? It's just such an, an, an enigma with with. Abramovich sort of um, nobody could quite work out just how hands off he is at the moment. But the, the interesting thing is, and I, I, I tweeted something post match yesterday. It was fairly kind of um, I thought balanced about about um, you know, saying, well, this is this is why he didn't pick. This is why he picked the younger players, not rather the older players. And people are sort of saying, oh, you, you know, you, you would have hammered um, sorry for that. Personally speaking, I. The only thing I ever even criticised Sarri for, and I think the only thing he really got wrong at Chelsea was not really giving the young players enough chance, and not and often going with experienced players like Giroud, uh, Zavacosta at, at times, like Alonso, who didn't really suit his style at the expense of the younger players. So I think to so that for me. The thing that Lampard did yesterday in picking the younger players was the right thing to do. I don't, I don't think there's much future in going with Giroud and Alonso and Zappacosta and people like that who don't suit the style that Chelsea want to play. Um, but there will be, uh, there will inevitably be some pain along the way, and, and I think the, the fans get that. I think the fans are on board with it. Chelsea's most experienced player yesterday as well, Aspilicueta, was someone who was at fault for two of the goals too. So. It's not yeah, really fair to sort of lump everything onto the young players, and I know that it's 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 a big change for Chelsea and and uh, to have to have 
Mason Mount and Zuma and, and Tammy Abram mm-hmm. in the starting lineup is 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 exciting and it's not worked out well in the first weekend, but um, it's it's early days and I don't think we should I don't think we should uh, read too much into that that mm-hmm. result. Well, I, there are obviously plenty of positives for, for Frank Lampard to take away from that game. In particular, I thought Mason Mount did really well on his Premier League debut, Molly. Definitely, I think so. And I think um, he's probably a player more than anyone that's actually shown what Frank Lampard can do as a manager. I think when he when he went to Derby, he was he was still very much developing and he, he really improved over the course of last season. Um, and I think he more than deserved that that chance to to play yesterday. And I think I know Jose Mourinho sort of said maybe you know he picked out a couple of the younger players and Mount was one of them that um, maybe they they should have expected a little bit more from. But I think I think Mount actually played pretty well. And I think you know he's he showed that he, he probably is ready for the Premier League now. And he's one of those that's actually shown how important that development and that loan spell in the Championship actually proved because he had the chance to play week in and week out, work out what worked and what didn't in his game and I think you know he'll only grow in confidence and you know as the guys were saying he's he's got a manager that believes in him believes in youth and I think that'll that'll only benefit Chelsea in the future in the in the post match press conference at Old Trafford uh, one of the first questions was about Mount and was about telling Lampard that Mourinho had 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 sort of singled Mount out and sort of questioned his performance and Lampard seemed quite Shocked and appalled by that, he's saying, "Oh, what? He, he actually said that about Mason Mount. Oh, well. He said Mason Mount, and I think he's got. I mean, clearly, Mount is not the finished article. Mourinho always wanted players who were the finished article. He wanted hardened, battle-hardened players, and Conte and and Sarri both wanted that in different in, in different ways, different styles. And I think Chelsea, under the transfer embargo, have had to go in a different direction, whether anybody likes it or not." So I don't really think, I think people need to, to see it in that context rather than thinking that he was going there to try to scrape a nil-nil with a, with a battle-hardened team, the, the team that probably Mourinho would have played in the same circumstances. And, and a team which, as, you know, without young players, has had some really bad defeats over the last couple of seasons. Mm. Some really bad ones under Sarri, some really bad ones under Conte. So I, I do think it's time for a rebuild, but you don't go for a long-term rebuild without having some pain. Well, Gregor, you were saying, you know, we shouldn't read too much into this defeat for Chelsea, but what about the victory for Manchester United? Yeah, I mean, I, I think actually on the, on the on the flip side, we probably shouldn't read too much into that either because <laughs> they were they were clinical in their, in their finish. And it was exciting to see them sort of return to that, um, that fast counter-attacking uh, play of, sort of Manchester United of old. Um, and there was a lot of positives to, to take, particularly having Harry Maguire in, in, in that back line. He sort of added a bit of presence. I think I think that's kind of almost what Josie Mourinho was possibly alluding to as well, is that having all these these sort of inexperienced players, these young guys in Chelsea's team, sort of that there's not really anyone with a with a presence. And I think that was something you noticed in, in Manchester United's back line. Harry Maguire just sort of exudes calm. Um, and people look to him and think, we've got we've got a, we've got a solid performer beside us now. And they, just the fact that he's there, his presence, whether he's playing playing fantastically well or not, I think that sort of you know lifts the players around them. And I think that's that was that was the difference between the teams. But there was there was a lot of positives for Manchester United. Paul Pogba 
after a sort of pretty tumultuous summer, um, played played really well. And Marcus Rashford suggesting that he's going to be able to step up just if he can do that on a, a consistent basis throughout the season. So there's a lot of positives for, for Manchester United. But again, I think we shouldn't read too much into um, either the, the sort of result from either perspective. Well, VAR made its first appearance in the top flight of English football this weekend. Love it or hate it, it is here to stay. And whether you like it or not, it's going to provide plenty of talking points. Oh, goodness. Where do we start? Um, Ollie, VAR then in the Premier League for the first time. What did you make of it this weekend? Um, I am not its biggest fan. That's not to say I'm a complete Luddite in, and don't see the positives in it. I mean, there's... There are no, there've been no grave injustices done. I don't think over the weekend, no scorelines which should have been different. No, no, no scorelines results have, have, have. Well, that unfortunately, that is not a VAR issue. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a stupid new rule which, yeah, whereby anything that hits the hand in the penalty area um, from the, for the attacking team, it's a handball. Which I mean, I think that, I think these things are all the result of. VAR because they've tried to try to take the subjectivity out of this decision. They've had to try to make it more of a binary thing: black, black, white. Is it handball? Is it off? You know, no, no kind of grey areas anymore. And I think the the rules in terms of that, the handball. I think they've, they've got all over the place. I mean, the Women's World Cup in the summer, there were so many sort of handballs given that should never have been penalties, in, in my opinion. And, and likewise, you know, the Champions League final, for example. Um, the, the men's Champions League final, that is, um, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm not completely on board with this at all. I, I, it, it's um, one thing that really annoyed me in the in the um, in the West Ham Man City game was was that really long delay mm. while they went through it in, in fine detail to work out that maybe according to this, you know, the the technology that they had. Um, Sterling was uh, about three millimetres offside um, in, in the lead up to that goal. That is not what, you know, offside, the offside rule was all about stopping people kind of goal hanging and, you know, seeking to gain advantage by being in, you know, way ahead of the defence. It wasn't about these infinitesimal um, sort of tiny distances, gaps, uh, where you're a few millimetres ahead and suddenly you can only spot on the on the tenth replay after two minutes of going through replay. I'm not keen on that at all. I don't think taking two minutes for, to work that out is something that really improves the game. I know people say I mean I've had a thousand or something replies on Twitter where, where people have said offsides, offside, you know, don't you want the right decisions? I don't want people scrutinising things for two or three minutes to to tell me that, oh yeah, this is offside because it's um, you know a hair's breadth uh, ahead of the ahead of the defender. It's I don't know. I, I don't think that is worth the upheaval. But there are yeah, there are improvements in other ways. Um, there were some good decisions that we probably wouldn't have got. And um, but I don't think that particular one, which is the most marginal of all, was a um, was something really to celebrate. Even though it was the correct decision, which I know sounds ludicrous, but it's just it's the time that it takes. Well, Molly, we all know what VAR was like at the World Cup for the women's game in France. So we knew what to expect this time around, didn't we? That it was going to cause some controversy? 
Well, yeah, to be quite honest, I sort of spent a month in France and never really wanted to see it ever again. Um, just, there was just such... Well, I think what is really frustrating for us as writers is you spend so much time talking about VAR and what you want to talk about is the football. And it's yeah. it's suddenly yeah. become such a big thing. It's become a bigger thing than if a referee had got a decision wrong and we talked about the fact that it was wrong. Mm. The, the VAR getting it right is bigger than that just because of the, the drama and everything that surrounds it. And I think actually Matthew Syed wrote a really good column this morning about it. Um, and he said, you know, the thing with the offside and the marginal offside is, yes, it's offside and it's not, but it takes so long. Mm. When you look at, like, the goal line system, even if it's one millimetre, it, it recognises it straight away and it's either it's a goal or it's not a goal. And that works so well and it's clear and everything like that. And I think, you know, maybe there's an argument that VAR shouldn't have been brought in until there was the ability to notice offside decisions that quickly because it's the delay and it's the, the impact on the celebrations, it's the impact for the fans. And I think that's the thing that for a lot of people is the main issue with VAR. It's not whether it's offside or not because... As Ollie said, you know, it is offside or not. You know, it the it's like the technology needs to sort of improve more so that for those decisions that aren't subjective, they are onside or offside goal or no goal, it needs to be instant. And mm. then, you know, whether you use it for subjective decisions is a whole other argument because even with VAR, you could watch it again and again and again. And with a handball, somebody could have an opinion, somebody else could have a different opinion. So I think that's part of the problem uh, with VAR generally. And yeah, to be quite honest, I'm sort of a bit annoyed it's invaded the Premier League as well as the Women's World Cup. (laughs) But you're right, we shouldn't necessarily be talking about it, so we won't talk about it for very long. But I wanted to just get your take, Gregor, on VAR as well, because uh, I don't know if you heard Jonathan Woodgate speaking after Middlesbrough's loss to Brentford at the weekend. Uh, He was fuming about decisions that went against Middlesbrough. Um, And he's saying, well, why don't we have it in the Championship? Do you have any sympathy towards Woodgate and, and do you think if you're going to have it in the Premier League we really should be having it elsewhere as well? Yeah, very much so. Um, I mean, we've been hearing for the last couple of years when, when whilst we've known this technology exists I mean, why, why are we not bringing, bringing uh, video assistant referees into, into the game and now they're here we're sort of we're finding all, all the little teething troubles and, and the flaws in it. Um, one thing I would say about that I mean, that was the Sterling the Sterling incident the, his offside mm. That was probably the the most sort of challenging uh, use of it that there's been, and I'm not sure how often we're going to get offsides that are that close to call. We're we're sort of starting to get debates on social media about the speed of freeze frames and slow motions, and whether <laughs> whether the technology even exists to to call the offside, whether it's a millimeter or or, or two millimeters. You know, I don't think we're going to see that all that often. Um, and as Ollie said, the 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 sort of the Leicester Wolves game, that's something to do with the laws rather than mm. the laws of the game rather than, than, than VR. Um, yes, it, it should certainly be in, in other divisions, but that's probably all about all about money. Um, and uh, I think until until all these these sort of uh, issues are ironed out, then probably they're better off without it just now. One thing that surprised me in, in the days leading up to the start of the season was that it, it came out that that the VAR were going to be reluctant, really, to intervene in cases of you know, violent conduct, or you know, that, that there was going to be a sort of, well, I think it was described a sort of high tolerance threshold to sort of uh, red card offences, all that kind of thing, which just seems a bit bizarre. I mean, it seems a bit um, strange to be 
agonising over these absolutely fine marginal um, offsides. And yet a pretty wild challenge can come in from Che Adams in the um, Burnley-Southampton game. And, and, you know, that looked to me like a red card. And that, and that was allowed to go because they seemingly not as keen to um, intervene in those cases as they are on offsides. Now, I know one is, one is a tackle and one is a goal or not a goal, but I, you know, the, the idea of VAR is if it's perfectly implemented and it's been totally sensibly thought through is probably acceptable to everybody. But, I just find some of the decisions around it, the decisions around how it's going to be implemented, I find them very strange. Where do you draw the line, otherwise, if if we're if you're stopping play so often? And I think that's what happened in the Women's World Cup. So I think I can understand why they're why they're talking about having a higher threshold. Um, and obviously, even the even the penalty kick that was that was brought back, there were people who were slightly confused about that until we found out it was about encroachment. Um, so I, I understand that actually from from that point of view. I think if if we're if if it's not the clear and obvious is the is really important. If it's if we're not sort of gauging it by that, then the game will stop even more often, and it really will become a, a major problem. I think the Premier League have sort of said that they're not going to use VAR for for goalkeepers having one foot on the line for mm-hmm. their uh, for penalties yeah. because of how how poorly that was sort of used by VAR in the Women's World Cup. So it's it's sort of like there are still teething problems and what's frustrating is that, you know, this technology has been there and we've been waiting for so long for it to come in and now it's in, we're still finding things that it doesn't quite work for. So I think it's it's definitely a work in progress and hopefully as the season goes on, we'll all get more used to it, the players, the referees and the VAR referees um, and hopefully this won't be such a talking point, I guess. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Manchester City picked up just as they left off last season. A 5-0 win over a West Ham side that had people talking over the summer. Um, I remember in our preview podcasts it was really just Alison Rudd that went for Liverpool to win the league um from what we've seen from Manchester City in this in this one game can anyone stop them Ollie well they did only finish a point above Liverpool last season but I find myself thinking that can anybody stop City I, I, I know people are saying oh it's it's Liverpool and oh, City Liverpool and then and then the rest but I, I think I think 
City are the best team in the Premier League, which I know you know people say, oh, Liverpool, you know, Liverpool won the Champions League, Liverpool um, only finished a point behind them. Both of those things are true, but I do feel that City, with the strength that they've got, and they've got stronger, which Liverpool probably haven't really, um, they've got stronger, they've got Kevin De Bruyne back after um, after missing most of last season, or never really getting a run of games last season, and I just thought they showed on Saturday, I mean, the first 25 minutes, until they scored, really, they, they were slow out of the blocks, really, um, and you think, oh, well, you know, maybe West Ham have found some way to um, frustrate them. But after that, it was, it was, it was, it was like an exhibition game. They were so far ahead of um, West Ham after that. The second half, it could have been, it could have finished off you know, seven or eight. It really could. Uh, I think City have got the ability to do that this season. I think that you know they've, they've scored in vast, vast numbers of goals uh, over the last couple of seasons under Guardiola. But I, I think they can. I think they can win games comfortably, really comfortably, um, almost every time they play. They are so good, so technically perfect, and it's so hard to you know, inflict any kind of damage on them because it's so hard even to get the ball off them. I think they are absolutely the team to be, and um, it's going to be very hard for anyone to live with them. So comfortable that Jose Mourinho said, uh, what, Manchester City and Manchester City's B team a title contenders, Molly. I think yeah, you sort you sort of can't disagree when you look at that bench. I mean, it was Claudio Bravo, Gundogan, Aguero, Bernardo Silva, Cancelo, Otamendi, and Foden, and literally any other team in the Premier League. Probably all of those, or at least a significant percentage, would have started. And I think that's something that you know you look at Liverpool last season, and they were very very good, but they had players that they relied a lot relied upon really heavily in that starting eleven. I mean, the front three in particular, if you look at um, Divock Origi, they probably wasn't expecting as much from him as what he, what he managed to deliver. And I think, you know, you're asking an awful lot for those three and Origi to play that well this season. Whereas with City, they've just got so many options. You know, if, if any one of those, you know, front players isn't playing so well, they've got that such strength and depth in there. They've brought in Rodri, who's um, looked really impressive, actually, and looked as though he's a natural sort of replacement for Fernandinho. And also, you know, provides them that little bit more of balance and, and is able to help them defensively as well. So I think it's it's too early to say, you know, that's it, Man City are going to run away with the title. But I think when you look at it on paper, as Mourinho says, it's it's just such a good team. And I think, you know, that's what they've done well with their recruitment. They've found they have um, identified their weaknesses um, and they've sort of acted on them and got the right people in, I suppose. You know, we talk a lot about money in the Premier League and all of that, but if you don't make the right signings, that doesn't really mean anything. Um, but but they seem to have done once again. And Rodri, you know, as I say, he he looked like a really good fit. Yeah, uh, Gregor, what did you make of Rodri, who of course is Manchester City's club record signing? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with Molly. It's just they, they seem to have every sort of aspect of the football club running uh, just like a well-oiled well-oiled machine and. Recruitment is no different. I think Roddy was was uh, highlighted as a as a player that could come in and and sort of fit, fit into the team seamlessly, but also be someone who's who's a sort of linchpin of the team for many years to come. Uh, and all the signs are he's he's fitting very well. A few a few times I think sort of speed of the game in the Premier League maybe got caught in possession on the edge of his own box or around his own box, and and he did so 
in the last half an hour or so of the Community Shield as well. So I think maybe there will be a little bit of, of a period of, of catching up to the pace of the Premier League. But he certainly looks like uh, a perfect player for, for that, that position, which is really crucial for, for the way Manchester City play. For all the positives of Manchester City, the West Ham boss Manuel Pellegrini accused them of making tactical fouls in that defeat. We have sort of talked about it before on previous podcasts, Ollie, but does does he have a point? He did mention that every time we tried to arrive in their box, they committed fouls. We were innocent in that regard. They committed 13 fouls, we committed five. That wasn't the reason why we lost, he said, but they didn't help matters. I bet a, a former professional footballer like Gregor would say <laughs> that if you're if you're under that much pressure against a superior team and you you could only concede five fouls in ninety minutes, that's not something a manager should be should be bragging about how, how few mm-hmm. fouls they they concede. I mean, City do do that. They, you know, Fernandinho is a master at it. Um, Bernardo Silva is is a master at it. But I, I find it all quite weird that this has become a, a great outrage in 2019 or 2018 as it probably was when it first came up because this has been going on for for 10 15 years and generally people get booked for it and if they don't get booked for it if it's a you know a foul on somebody's trying to break on the counter attack and they're, they're 70 yards from goal but somebody pulls them back or trips them generally generally you get a yellow card for that or you should get a yellow card and if you don't then um you know that's you, you've got lucky but uh, you know, Rodri got booked eventually on on Saturday. I think nearly all Fernandinho's book yellow cards and Bernardo Silva's yellow cards, and David Silva's yellow cards are of that type. So there's no denying that they do it. I think if Guardiola denies that they're doing it, that's that's pretty um, pretty silly. But um, everybody does it, or nearly everybody does it. And those that don't do it, while knowing that the um, you know, the the sanction will generally be a yellow card. Is, you know, it, it, it's silly not to. If you can if you can cynically but safely foul a, a player in a way that stops you getting done on the counter attack, then why wouldn't you? Yeah, it's regarded as a as a good foul. That's what that's what you call it. Mm. <laughs> I've done many of them myself, and <laughs> um, and I think I, I would say though that it does seem to be a little bit more of a a sort of tactic, a sort of something that is evident that, that Manchester City do. I don't know whether that's because they pile so many bodies forward and, you know, they're they're so expansive in the play, but it does seem to be that it's something they are, I wouldn't say coached in, but they're, it's certainly a tactic that you would notice a little bit more, I think, in Manchester City than, than other teams. Um, but like I say, that's probably because they have so much of the ball, they play so expansively, and when they lose the ball in, up the pitch and they've only got two, perhaps three bodies back, uh, that's the safest way for them to 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 sort of to to commit a foul and then and then get back into into the shape. That's that's so it's understandable why they do it. And just a word on West Ham, Molly. Okay, five nil. You don't want to start the season uh, in that way. But as we were, as we mentioned at the start of this little segment, people have been talking up West Ham. Do we have much expectation for them? Uh, I think it's it, it almost feels a bit deja vu because I think you sort of probably felt a little bit of the same last season. Um obviously you've got Pellegrini there who's a who's a great manager and they've they sort of always felt like on paper that team could be better than the result it seems to get. I think, you know, West Ham are probably one of those teams that you look like and you think, Who are the players that are really gonna dig in and 
and get a result when they don't always have those players. You know, they have the stars and they have the players that, that look really good on paper, but actually when it comes down to it, when it's a difficult game, they don't always seem to be the side that, that just gets that point or just gets that last-minute winner that, that really affects the game and ultimately the, the Premier League table at the end of the season. So I think, you know, West Ham fans must be pretty frustrated, really, because they, they see the potential that it has and they see Pellegrini as the manager and, you know, they're probably thinking they should be doing a little bit better than they are. But obviously, as we've said throughout this pod, I mean, it's the first day of the season and, you know, thankfully they don't have to play Man City every week. <laughs> How true. Uh, Anfield hosted the season opener and what an opener it was. Four first half goals against Norwich all but won the game before the halftime whistle rang and then that set them on their way to a 4-1 win in the end. We'll talk about the Premier League new boys uh, in a little while, but Ollie, 4-1, was did that flatter Jurgen Klopp's side? Yeah, it did. I mean, the same way that you'd say it of um, Man United beating Chelsea 4-0. I mean, it, Liverpool Norwich was not a 4-1, or it didn't feel like a 4-1. Um, at the time, Liverpool scored a second. I mean, Norwich had probably been threatening an equaliser, the force could say from the lesson. Um I think when they conceded another two goals before half time, I mean, for it to be four 0 at half time just felt so harsh. You, you, you were impressed by how clinical Liverpool had been, but it was and and, and the intensity that they played with for a, you know, in spells. But it was uh, it, it was harsh. The four nil half time scoreline. Norwich played some really nice stuff, and yet you know they made defensive mistakes. But I don't really go with this idea that it was completely naive the way they played. I think it was a, a terrible sort of slice for, by Grant Hanley for, 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 for the first goal. There was the, you know, Van Dijk was left unmarked for the third goal. But generally, I don't think playing out from the back is going to be Norwich's problem. They, they, they will concede goals playing that way, but it's, but it's the way they want to play. It's the way they played in order to get promotion. You know, It, it works for them. And as Daniel Farker said on Friday night, you know, they're not going to suddenly change to parking the bus every week because because they're in the Premier League. They, they need to do what they to, to play the way that suits the players they've got. And they've got all these very talented young players, and, and I like the wide players in particular, the fullbacks and the and the, and the wide midfielders. But it, it's it's they were against Liverpool, who were clinical. Um, I think. They were much better after after half time, and I, I I came away from that thinking, you know, not you've got a good chance of staying up here, which is not a, a typical thing you would say after a newly promoted team loses four one on the on the opening day. Well, we mentioned that the strength and depth that Manchester City have on this pod already, um, and and people were suggesting that Liverpool needed to strengthen. They had, as you already pointed out, Molly, quite a reliance on their starting eleven. But when you look further into their squad, it perhaps didn't have that that um, game-changing factor that, that a Manchester City squad would have. Does it surprise you that they didn't bring really anybody in in this window? I think it does a little bit. I think uh, I sort of understand where Jurgen Klopp was coming from. I think he said, you know, they had such a, a good team, a solid team, and he was quite wary of bringing in new players that might disrupt that. And I think what what Man City have probably done so well, particularly in recent seasons, I mean, when Pep first took over, he did make quite a big overhaul of the squad and he got exactly who he wanted in. But then in the past few seasons, they've sort of pinpointed one place that they needed to improve upon. They've brought in one player and then 
sort of seamlessly transitioned instead of making this really big overhaul that's disrupted the whole team. And I think, you know, arguably that's what Liverpool could have done, that, you know, I don't think anybody was asking for wholesale changes there. Mm. You know, just perhaps in one or two positions, you were just thinking, you know, maybe you need a little bit more cover. I mean, you, you look at players like Van Dijk, I mean, Alisson, who obviously got injured against Norwich. Without those sort of players, you do wonder, you know, the strength and depth isn't quite there. But I think... You know, again, as I mentioned earlier, you could sit here and if you say, you know, Firmino, Salah and Mane, if if they can play as well as they did last season and they can stay injury-free, you've also got players like Oxlade-Chamberlain that are, that are back now. Obviously, he had that really long injury that kept him out. Naby Keita, he had his injury problems last season. Adam Lallana. So they do, they do sort of have that strength and depth there. But at the same time, you are going to get injuries. And I think... Perhaps they were quite lucky the last season that Van Dijk and Allison didn't get injured, and you know as we've seen so early on, you know that that's not going to last forever. And at some point, your your key players are going to get injured, and then that's where Jurgen Klopp must have been thinking, oh, you know, sod's law that it, that it's Allison that's got injured because he's he's such an important part of their team, and he was the signing that that sort of took them that step further and probably won them the Champions League. Mm. Gregor, is the strength and depth a concern for you for Liverpool? Um, well, obviously, the injury to to Allison sort of brought home the the the, the fact that Liverpool were, were pretty fortunate last season in, in keeping all their key players fit. Um, I think he's set to be out for about eight weeks, um, and that's obviously going to be a, that's a big blow for Liverpool. So, um, I think though, on the whole, they have a squad that's you know they've welcomed back well welcomed back a few players from from injury over the summer. Um, and they have a squad that's easy, easily capable of of handling uh, the Premier League campaign. The only thing is around around Christmas time we're going to have extra fixtures, um, and I think that that's the time that they really are going to be tested. But I think I think they have they have the squad to to cope with 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 the rigors of a Premier League campaign. Um, it's just whether that squad is is going to be able to keep up with Manchester City. Ollie, what do you think about Liverpool's squad that they have right now? Um, I think if you looked at it last season, you would have said if there was one thing that cost them, um, I mean, look, again, to repeat, 97 points, which is, which is, you know, an incredible total. But if there's one thing that stopped them getting 99 points, 100 points, whatever it would have taken to win the league, you would say during that period where, you know, January, February, where the fixtures had built up and you know, heavy pitches and so on, People like Salah seem to be in need of a bit of a rest and, and there was a bit, bit of shortage in certain positions, um, defensive positions in particular. And you know, the, the squad on paper is actually weaker than last season in that they've lost Alberto Moreno and, and uh, Daniel Sturridge who, OK, look, you know, they didn't play many many minutes of football last season and, and you know, they're probably not really players that um, Klopp was able to rely on. But they have... It, you know they are looking for Naby Keita and Oxlade Chamberlain to, to provide the improvement, having missed most of last season through injury, and they're looking for younger players like Ryan, Ryan Brewster to, um, to to step up and fill a gap. And it's it's very hard really to predict that Liverpool will match what they did last season, which was win the Champions League, incredible, get 97 points in the Premier League, incredible. How, how do you how do you replicate that? How do you improve on it without um, without buying? So I, I thought that they would do a bit more in the transfer market, but I I mean 
I, I think we've probably learned to trust Klopp's judgment over the years, and um, he does know what he's doing. But I, I, I do feel that you know, if they'd been able to strengthen even the sort of absolutely minor weaknesses in this squad, like Manchester City have been, um, then they'd be, uh, then they'd probably be in a stronger position. But the uh, loss of Allison will be a big blow to them. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's, I mean, he had such a good, strong, commanding presence um, on them last season. I mean, just from the moment he arrived, really, when I was a, a couple of little close turns that were ill-advised, but he was he was just such a good signing for them. Um, I think Simon Mignolet will probably be thinking, God, why, why, why couldn't he have been injured last season when I was there? But Mignolet is a perfectly competent goalkeeper who probably was never really going to be trusted again at Liverpool um, because he, he, you know, there was baggage there in terms of him as a Liverpool goalkeeper in the same way that there was with, with Carrius. And I think perhaps a new goalkeeper like Adrian coming in from West Ham and I think he'll probably you know, get the benefit of the doubt more often and, and teammates will probably trust him a bit more than they trusted Mignolet, which sounds really harsh on Mignolet because he's you know, a perfectly competent keeper. But... Um, I think Liverpool's fans will probably feel more confident with a with a new reserve goalkeeper than they than they would either of the previous ones. But I mean, Allison was the difference between one point and three uh, on occasions last season, um, and I think um, it will be you know the, the pressure will be on Adrian to to bail him out at some point over the next few weeks. Well, let's talk about the Premier League new boys now. We've touched on Norwich, who lost 4-1 to Liverpool, but there were some good signs for Daniel Farker to take out of that match. Timu Puki looked lively up top, and then they also had the introduction of Moritz Leitner, who made Norwich look even more dangerous on the break. But that downfall was the amount of space that Liverpool found regularly in that game at Anfield. I know Ollie's already mentioned it, but Gregor... Does Daniel Farker have to change the way Norwich play or can they actually go into these Premier League games in similar fashion as to how they did in the Championship? Yeah, I was I was a little bit puzzled by the sort of reaction to to Norwich's play on, on Friday. I think, I mean, anyone who watched them last season knew they were going to play the same way. Daniel Farker is pretty evangelical about, about his, his sort of philosophy and the way, way Norwich are going to play. So that was always going to be the case, and I think the way they, you know, the way they tried to build play from the back, that really didn't contribute to any of the of the goals they conceded. I think the worrying thing is Liverpool really didn't have to lay a glove on them to score those goals. I think Origi got past uh, Max Ahrens far too easily. I know there was a sort of a bit of an aberration the the own goal for the first goal. Van Dijk completely unmarked for the second. Um, Origi again ghosted inside Aaron's for the third. Um, I just think that really, you know, you know, we've said that Man City don't won't, won't have to play. Uh, sorry, West Ham won't have to play Man City every week, and the same sort of thing was said about Norwich not having to go to Anfield every week. Liverpool didn't didn't have to do much to to score those goals, and that's that was the worry. I said that on the on the on the preview podcast that they conceded fifty seven goals last mm. season as they won the league, which is, you know, I think it was 16 more than Sheffield United, and who finished second. And they have to change that. You know, they, they're going to win some games 4-3 perhaps, and they will score goals. I think we saw that. They look they look a threat going forward. 
um, some really exciting young players, but they're going to have to remedy that, and they're, they're often individual mistakes, and it's not easy to do. Aston Villa? Well, they almost won that first game, didn't they? In the sense, they went 1-0 up against Tottenham. They led up until the break, but then they went on to lose that 3-1 in North London. 12 brand new signings for Dean Smith and Aston Villa. Molly, from what you've seen of Aston Villa, did they do enough for for everyone to stop comparing them to Fulham? I I think there were definitely some promising signs for Villa. And I think, you know, compared to Fulham, I think you would have to say that Villa are, are in a better position. I mean... The the big signing for me that I feel was sort of really insightful is probably Tom Heaton. I mean, he's one of those goalkeepers that's he's just solid, and what he's done for Burnley over the years, he's just he he is you know how we talk about Allison, the difference between one point and three points, but he really has been that so many times for Burnley, and there's times where he's really sort of literally had a barrage of shots on his goal, and he's just stood tall, and he's he's been that player that's been so important for them, and I think. For Villa, you know, you've you've got players like Grealish and McGinn that you know they do have the quality going forward. Um, but someone like Heaton, he's just he's that calm presence. He's got the experience, and you know, again, to- Tottenham are a very very good team. And the fact that they were able to score, yes, they conceded goals, but they won't, you know, they won't always have to defend, and Heaton won't always have to face shots from the players of like Harry Kane's calibre. Um, so I think you know. They should be in a better position than Fulham to to defend. I mean, for long long spells of that game, they did defend quite well. And I think you know, against the sort of middle of the table teams, and particularly the ones that you know they've they've come up with, they'll sort of back themselves to to be better than them. And I think they probably will be. And I think it certainly won't be a a situation like Fulham where the, the defending was just calamitous at times. I think you know there's signs there for Villa that. They have got a little bit more stability and, you know, they're they're more prepared for the top flight. Ollie, was it fair that we compared Aston Villa's transfer activity to, to what Fulham did last season? No, I, I, I think it's inevitable when people see a, a, a newly promoted team uh, club spending loads of money and sort of outspending almost all of the heavyweights in the Premier League. I think, I think it's a, a natural sort of comparison to make when there's a, a bad example in, in, in recent, you know, very, very recent memory. But oof, one thing people forget about the Fulham um, spending is that an awful lot of it, or in terms of the number of players that came in, an awful lot of that was done in the final days, never mind weeks of the transfer window, whereas Villa, it all seemed a bit more, no, a lot more organised, thought out. A lot of, you know, nearly all of it was done by the end of, end of July, I think. Um, it just it looked much better thought out, you know. Add, adding Tyrone Mings, um, who obviously was fantastic for them last season on, on loan, I think that was that was a a big, big, important signing. And I know people were saying, "God, you know, twenty six million or, or whatever it was," but I, I thought he was really good on Saturday. And I, I think they will be the best of the three um, newly promoted teams. I don't have any real sense that, that they'll struggle at all, which I know sounds ridiculous, but I, I look at their team and I see a lot of quality, a lot of character, personality, um, playing for their manager, he's got them organised, they've got momentum from those amazing last couple of months in the, in the Championship, and I, I think they'll be fine. Well, of the three teams that came up, it was only Sheffield United that didn't lose. They left it late, though. And it was fans' favourite Billy Sharp who picked up where he left off last season to grab an 88th-minute equaliser uh, at Bournemouth with that game finishing 1-1. Gregor, how important is it that 
Billy Sharp got that first goal. He got the monkey off his back, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, look, I think this was the story of the weekend, really. We've talked a lot about VAR and, and the big boys, but this is a this is a real fairy tale story. Billy Sharp, someone someone who actually I played against throughout my career and uh, going way back to when he, he kicked it all off at Scunthorpe in League One and, and Doncaster. And, you know, there was even question marks about whether he could score goals in the Championship, and, and he's done that in, in the last couple of seasons in particular. And, yeah... It, it was it was brilliant. It was great scenes to see to see the celebrations afterwards as well. And I think I think Chris Wilder deserves a lot of credit as well because he threw on three subs: Freeman, McBurney, and Sharp. And he always does that. He's very brave with his substitutes. And he and said, "Right, we're we're going to get something from this game." And I think he was right when he said afterwards that they deserved to. And I think I think Eddie Howe really agreed too. I think I think Sheffield United they're going to get a lot of plaudits this season. Whether they stay up or not, it's going to be tight because the sort of resources they have compared to all the other clubs is, are, are sort of really, really small. Um, but they have a group of players that have been together for, for so many years and Billy Sharp as their talisman to, to come off the bench and, and score, score some crucial goals. So I hope we see more of that this season. Yeah, as you said, it was a fairy tale moment for, for Billy Sharp, that is for sure. OK, that is it for now. Many thanks to our guests today, Molly Hudson and Oliver Kay. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. It is just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. Search The Times subscription for more information. And Gregor and I will be back on Thursday following Chelsea and Liverpool's clash in the Super Cup with all the best analysis and build-up to the weekend's action as well. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk.